go. There you are. Words and images give us a sense of control when things are going on in life that we're frightened or overwhelmed or uh, cannot make sense of, we can seek solace and uh, a, a, a sense of escape, distance, by seeking the shelter of our ideas. And don't get me wrong, this realm plays a very, very important role in life, and we can't do without it. And it would be foolish to, to even try. Um, of course, though, we don't live, actually, on only one plane. There's actually another plane that's often completely uh, occurring beneath our awareness, which is the plane of feelings, which are the core of emotions. Feelings are the internal, largely embodied physical sensations that only you are aware of. When they turn into emotions, they take on uh, thoughts and external markings. So if I feel sad, you wouldn't know it because it's a feeling in the body. But if I am visibly sad, if you see my body language or I'm, I'm, I've got a frown or I'm slumping forward, I'm crying, uh, there's a quiver in my voice, then I'm not only feeling sad, but it's become a fully-fledged emotional state. So tonight I'm going to be focusing on both, but largely feelings. Feelings are made up of, uh, well, they're the result of the emotional core of the brain. And uh, I'm a big neuroscience geek, so I'll throw out some terms and uh, uh, why I do this is simply out of habit and to show off and make it seem like I'm, I'm smart and stuff like that. But you really don't have to memorize any of these names. Um, there's regions of the brain like the amygdala, the hypothalamus, the hippocampus, the nucleus accumbens, and basically what they do is whenever we're in the presence of something that's either a threat, a perceived threat to our survival or to, uh, to our comfort, or a great opportunity, they set about first a reaction. If it's a threat, if I think I'm in the presence of something that's threatening that I can fight off or get rid of on my own, then it will set about or trigger the fight reaction. It'll trigger the release of the adrenal gland and my muscles will contract in my arms and I'll start producing red blood cells and uh, my thyroid will kick in my uh, metabolism and I'll be all ready for a fight. And similarly to that, if I don't think I can push away the threat, if I think the only way to survive is to flee, then it'll set about a flight reaction, which has subtle shadings. Uh, and part of flight is also alert, screaming for help, trying to get attention. Now, if I'm in a situation where I don't think I can fight or flee, I'm completely overwhelmed. It's uh, something that's such a massive threat to my life. For instance, an infant with an abusive caretaker or somebody who's just uh, 
experienced a horrific violent event or a tragedy, that might set in the freeze response, which is very uh, similar to dissociative, dissociative episodes. Basically what happens is the body goes into an almost uh, all of the um, the hormones that might have been triggered are not. The dopamine drops away and the mind goes into a uh, fantasy realm that's completely disconnected from what's happening so that we can essentially flee the body and not be present to the, the, what's, what's overwhelming us. So those are the negative responses. The positives are if I see something that is going to be very beneficial for me. Uh, it could be uh, something, a tool or uh, a connection with someone or food or sex or whatever. Anything can trigger the hypothalamus to release massive floods of uh, dopamine. And then that also releases cortisol and it also it triggers uh, this craving. And that feels very excitory in the body. Although sometimes we can mistake fear with craving. A good friend of mine, a woman uh, I knew uh, for many years before she moved to Colorado, told me that she always mistook uh, uh, fear for lust. She sees some guy and she'd have this physical response that she was sure was lust. And she'd date, and it would always be a disaster. And then she said, you know, I realized after 10 years that what I was thinking was lust was actually just my brain saying, stay away from this person. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway. uh, And then the last core state is reward, when you've accomplished or accumulated something, and that feeling that really being flooded not only with... uh, uh, dopamine, but endorphins, and also the nucleus accumbens is triggered, so you're in that great state. So if we've been threatened as an infant, suppose the caretaker goes away and leaves us in darkness, and we feel vulnerable, and there's darkness, there's silence, and there's being alone, when we go into a traumatic reaction, the amygdala not only sets about the reaction, but it memorizes everything that's present. So you take in every single sensation. It's not a very smart thing. It can't tell what's really dangerous from what not. So when during a trauma, you will take in every single sensation around you. And in the future, if you don't de-trigger those sensations, they can in the future re-trigger an episode. I'll give you an example. If you're in a car crash, and God forbid you're listening to Steely Dan, I have no idea why. <laughs> why would you be doing that? Why? Why? And you say, but I'm not doing that. That's not me. That's, this is your story. And still, I, because I said you were. And anyway, so, um, but the next time you hear Steely Dan, because it was present during the trauma, you will have a, you know, a freeze or a um, flight re- reaction. The amygdala doesn't know 
what the salient sensations are until you go through the process of detriggering or desensitizing or habituating. Use whatever word you like. So, for example, if a child is suddenly thrust into a dark room, the job of the caretaker is to reestablish a secure connection by going in and by saying, no, I'm in the next room, I'm here, you'll be okay, I can hear you. And over time, if the parent is developing a secure connection, it reestablishes that bond. And eventually, in life, we begin to desensitize to those sensations, the darkness, the, alo- the being alone, the, the silence. Um, and then also what we do to make that transition in life of habituating ourselves to things that are frightening as infants, and virtually everything is frightening to an infant, is we also develop self-soothing strategies when the caretaker's not around. So we might have a transitional object like a blanket or a toy or an imaginary friend to uh, create a, what's known as a titrating experience. All the, the Buddha listed, interestingly, all of the self-soothing techniques in a wonderful sutta called the Sabhasava, and he goes through seven ways that we can skillfully self-soothe through very difficult experiences. Some of the the ways that infants and children learn, and we develop this through life, to self-soothe through frightening situations is distracting our attention, thinking or looking at something else, uh, restraining the senses, again, which would be focusing somewhere else in the body. And neither of these are escapist, because you're well aware during these self-soothing practices that the scary element that you're frightened of is still present but you're just developing another focus of awareness so that we're not flooding into the thing that's triggering us. And we can also bear in mind the reward if there's a reward that will come through walking through something that's frightening. So anyway, if all things work out well, we generally take things that are very frightening in infancy. For instance, when I was a kid, cats were terrifying, terrifying because I, well, I got once got scratched. And so until I fully uh, habituate, habituated and uh, worked through it, even as a, a, an adult, no longer in any way um, vulnerable to cats, I still had a bit of a triggered response. They say that elephants are trained when they're very young and in circuses, I guess, they put a pole in the ground and when the elephants are young, they can't pull the pole out. But by the time they're adults, they could easily pull the pole out that they're connected to, but they don't because they've simply come to believe that there's nothing they can do. So we can take these associations and keep them for entire lifetimes unless we try to push through them through reestablishing connection to feel safe, to know that we're protected, and also by self-soothing. Eventually, all these things that we develop, experience, turn into what could be called an inner barometer. You use this inner barometer all the time. If you're in a restaurant and some, you're faced with a menu and your choice is the, uh, uh, the falafel, 
or the, the Musata, I'm just making this up because it's what I had for lunch, uh, you don't think through, logically, what should I eat? Well, I know that in the falafel there's chickpeas, which is a protein source. Which That's not what we do. We simply notice unconsciously the associative responses that the body gives rise to as we look at all the choices, and we go by the feeling that arises. Some people refer to this as instincts, gut feelings. All they are are things that we have toned down enough that we can be with them without screaming, running, and shouting, but we still have very subtle physical reactions. Now, sometimes your instincts, your gut feelings are really, really useful. If you've been working in a job for a long time, you develop a lot of experience. And that experience of things that went well and things that didn't go well, they'll turn into very subtle physical sensations. So if I, God forbid, was an interior uh, decorator, I say God forbid because I have no uh, abilities in that at all, but uh, if I was that and I worked at it for a long time and people would say, do you want to paint this wall green? I would say, no! And it would be based on a gut reaction because before I'd been around and I'd seen a situation where we painted the walls green and I know it didn't work. So I saved myself a lot of thought by working from gut instincts. However, there are certain situations in life where our instincts, our feelings, are not so useful. There are a lot of unarmed kids that get shot by policemen in dark alleys simply because they're people of color or because they uh, might look at a policeman in the wrong way. All the time we act out on very subtle, uh, societally influenced uh, biases that have become rooted unconsciously in feelings. The Buddha said that these feelings, this inner barometer, is in many ways the last exit we have before, often before real suffering kicks in. If we were going to go, this was another talk and I was going to go through the what's known as, and this is a terrible phrase, the chain of codependent arising, a phrase that no human being has ever said, naturally, unless you're a Buddhist <laughs> teacher. So why they translate it as this shit that makes no fucking sense of chain, how's your, what was your chain of codependent arising today like, Bob? Well... <laughs> It, you know, heavy stuff. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. So anyway, um, um, basically the Buddha's explanation of how the various movements causally that create suffering in our lives, both on a large scale and also on a moment-by-moment basis. The core of the teaching there is simply that Vedana, gut feelings, are automatic. They happen like this. And he, the Buddha was right. They're pre-conscious. They run in a mechanism, uh, a route from the thalamus to, um, to the, uh, I'm sorry, the parasympathetic nervous system that's much faster than thought. 
So you will have a gut reaction, a feeling state, a feeling tone before you have any thought. There's no way you can intercept a feeling that's arising. If you are walking through the woods and you see a, a, a stick that looks like a snake, it's much faster than thought, the response that'll make you jump and startle and turn to run. So trying to push away, resist, argue with, debate, or shame our feelings is the biggest waste of time a human being can do. And we've got some big wastes of time. But guess what? It's faster than your thought. It's arising before those frustrated thoughts of why again? Why am I being triggered? Why was I so, you know, on guard? Why did I suddenly go into that armored state? Why, 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 why? Because it's preconscious. That doesn't mean, though, that we can't be triggered. As we talk, we can desensitize a lot of the things that trigger us in life. But once we catch, if we learn to be mindful and catch a stress response in the body, we can stop it before it becomes the fully-fledged suffering of what's known as craving, which is when the emotion, the feeling turns into an emotion, and I want this, or I hate you, or I want to get rid of you, or I've got to have those shoes, I've got to have those shoes, I'm not going to live without those shoes. Damn it. <laughs> so that's when it becomes craving, and then when it becomes attachment, upadana, then it, we get filled with thoughts. Views, opinions, beliefs, rituals. I, every Friday I buy new shoes. Every Saturday I get a hoodie because that's the way I'm, <laughs> I roll. Yeah, but anyway, um, <laughs> so the idea is nobody talks like that. I don't know if you're like, well, <laughs> you're probably thinking, well, maybe there's people in Brooklyn that talk like this. I don't know what he's on about. It's really kind of strange, but... I'll, I'll, nobody does. I'm just making this shit up. Anyway, uh, so you get the idea. Um, if we can grab hold of the sensations when they are at the state of felt Vedana, we can actually, the great uh, Buddha Gosa, the commentary on the early Buddhist teaching said, this is the place we get the great last exit before we're on the highway to suffering. I'm using L.A. language. <laughs> Maybe not. I should say, I took root this to the that, to the this, to the that, to the other thing. Joseph, this is the Joseph from Dennis. All he was talking about in the car. Should I take the this to the that? I'm like, I'm from Brooklyn. I don't know about this stuff. Anyway, uh, so once you, if you can catch and stay with the body sensations before it raises up to the level of emotional craving or aversion or just delusional, self-centered ideation, and then we get flooded with thought, then we can avert the fully-fledged, obsessive clinging and drives and propulsions that push us and make us act out when somebody triggers us, when somebody gives us that wrong look, when we're filled with stress and we're driving and somebody cuts us off and they give us the finger and then we're... And... The only way to stop that is to 
put aside the thoughts and catch it in the body before it, it flows out. And sometimes one way to stop it is just to grab hold of the legs or bring the awareness down physically low so that we can grab the feeling as it arises and stay with it and keep the mind away from all the justifications. Because that's the job of the conceptual mind, to add in a story when we're filled with energy or fear or rage the conceptual mind races in and it's like, fuck that guy! Fuck that guy! Fuck that guy! Hey, you! Fuck you! Yeah, you! That's the job of the conceptual mind, to explain these feelings, to explain what's going on in the world, to explain the stuff that's really happening. The conceptual mind jumps in and that's its job, to add a story that makes sense of it all. There's a lot of great stuff on this by a great neuroscientist named Joseph Ledoux who did a lot of studies on uh, the role of um, feelings in, uh, in emotional decision-making. And he also did some studies about how people always attribute um, their strong feelings invariably, invariably incorrectly. If somebody reminds us of somebody in our past that we found threatening, even though they, the present person, hasn't done anything threatening, the conscious mind will jump in and come up with a reason. I don't like a shirt that fucker's wearing. Fucking yuppie. I, I, he's wearing khakis. Can you believe it? You know, this is terrible. We're just looking for a reason to justify something that's triggered by association. So this brings me to the final part of the talk, which is uh, working with old wounds and traumas. Fun stuff. So uh, There is very often uh, over the course of life, well not very often, uh, it depends on, on many, many different factors, but uh, there are times in life where we don't, after a trauma, a frightening event, a threat, we don't restore secure connection with a caretaker or uh, somebody who pr provides a, a sense of security. This happens, for example, with infants who have abusive caretakers. The very person that they would run to to restore connection after a frightening event has caused the threat and has deprived the infant of even being, of having a secure connection connection afterwards. So rather than in any way, shape, or form being alleviated, these raw sensations associated with the trauma remain hot and on guard. We have not done anything to turn it off. In life, during really, as adults, when we go through sudden violent experiences or experiences that are overwhelming, very often we don't, because of uh, our strategies uh, that we've developed to um, take care of ourselves at all costs, not seem weak, not seem needy, not seem dependent, not, you know, seem uh, clingy or whatever, we don't seek a secure connection after trauma, a, play, a person that we can talk to and, and bond with and emotionally 
be held, and additionally, we don't develop any of the self-soothing strategies with these traumas, because very often the most efficient strategy we use is either the coping strategy of avoidance, getting drunk, having disposable sex, uh, buying, shopping, interneting, not a verb, but you know what it is, Facebooking. We look for anything to get rid of the feeling, the raw emotional state of vulnerability that has arisen in the aftermath of a trauma. And so we never, in those situations, turn them off. They remain on guard. And so this is what happens. Follow me here. These very hot associations of trauma, we compartmentalize them and we try to go about our lives as if everything's okay. I'm fine. How are you doing? Yeah, everything's great. We just keep moving and we run into our lives and avoid feeling those difficult, painful, overwhelming, powerful things that need attention in the body, the sadness, the fear, the confusion that might come after a rape, a violence, an attack, an abusive situation, a sudden death, a loss, a separation, anything. We have these feelings and we're running away from them. And then what happens is we think we're back in our lives and we're fine and we look for nice little sayings to make it all go away. When somebody dies, you know, we don't want to feel the feelings often, so we just go with, yeah, he lived a full, long life. He was, he was happy at the end. So we don't have to feel the loss. We look for a nice consoling thought. Then what happens is out of the blue, we go through an experience that somehow triggers that unattended trauma, those raw sensations that are still set on high alert. And guess what? They flare up and they attach and they create all this rising anger or fury or rage or sadness or confusion or just all this energy starts boiling up and the mind starts going crazy because it's not really about the most recent person who dumped us or the most recent bad conversation or about the person that cut us off on the road. I'll give you an example. When I was... uh, like about 15 years ago I had a severe depressive episode and I uh, wound up having these obsessive thoughts about um, just being a failure and not adding up and not being good enough in life and all about how other people were doing better and it was because what had happened was these old feelings that had arisen when I was growing up with a drunk father who kept on saying, you're not a real man. You're not a real man. You're not, you're not like me. You're not, you're not an outdoorsy, tough guy. You get beaten up. You know, you're, you're just weak. You're not good enough. And I, as much as I tried to, over the years, my, I couldn't really access enough those feelings and get restore a secure connection with any therapist I saw. So they were raw, and then suddenly they just attached to just these little 
events and little things that people were saying, and I just got so triggered. And the reason why I couldn't get rid of it is because it wasn't about the people I worked with or about the feelings of not being good enough as an adult. What it really was about is there was a kid inside that literally had never been comforted. And so I learned in my meditation, as part of my mindfulness, to use this practice of literally holding in my mind the uh, if it, I could use an image of the person who's triggering me but not the story I just accepted the fact that I was obsessed or triggered I allowed that to be and I would either hold the image of them in my mind or I would just hold the question what does this feel like what really needs to be felt here what's really beneath this just really probing into the belly, into the chest, just deep, what needs to be felt, what needs to be felt, what needs to be felt. And suddenly, I was no longer thinking about any of these current events, my salary and my job and, and not any of that stuff. Suddenly, there I was again, just this memory of being this vulnerable little kid and just this fear and this terror and not having any place to go. And I literally just gave this feeling room, and then I said to it, it's okay. We'll be okay together. You know? I'm not a little kid anymore. He's not a towering bully anymore. I'm an adult. I'm okay. We'll get through this together. You're allowed. You're allowed to be there. And I didn't want the feelings to go away. I didn't want the raw tightness in the stomach and the hollowness in the chest to go away. I wanted to be there with it and to nurture it and to let it know that together we were going to be okay. And so that's how I work now whenever I feel there's something... If it's, they say, if it's hysterical, it's historical. If the reaction in life is prolonged or disproportionate, it means it's not really about the person that I'm angry with or frustrated with or upset with. It means it's attached to very old feelings of abandonment, rejection, disapproval, not being met. And I let go of that person and I just ask again and again what needs to be felt. So to summarize this talk, um, the keys are to, one, begin to develop an awareness of where you somatically experience and express those really strong fight-or-flight impulses. When you find yourself triggered, when you find yourself really frustrated with a, you know, uh, you know, customer service person or, or on driving or something, when you're really triggered, go into the body and find what's tight. And just note, okay, it's my chest, it's my throat that gets tight, it's my shoulders that lock, it's the back of my neck, it's my face muscles, it's my stomach. Find your, your as a canary in the mind shaft, to use a metaphor, just find it. And then when you go into situations that trigger you in the future that you've still not desensitized or habituated to, 
Bring your awareness to those areas and breathe into them and relax them so you can disarmor and self-soothe through the process of stepping through what's frightening. And if, on the other hand, you feel really strong, debilitating obsession where literally no matter how much meditation you do, you still feel the same thoughts and angers and repetitive ideations coming up, that means... The work ahead is to sit, and after we establish peace, welcome, welcome, greet. Now, I know you might say, but it will be overwhelming, but I guarantee you, if you remove the resistance and you actively invite the feelings up, they will not be overwhelming. If they're very powerful, you can keep some of the awareness on parts of the body that are not triggered and just enough to open and create space. And then when those feelings arise, just keep asking what needs to be felt, giving it space. And then when you feel it's fully reached its apex, then we soothe, we compassionately say, together we'll get through this. We can get through this. We'll be okay. We'll be okay. So I thank you for listening. I hope there was something in there that was interesting. I'm really grateful for your attendance. And um, grateful for Against the Stream LA for uh, again allowing me to have the honor of speaking here. So uh, I'm going to turn off my.